Hello and greetings once again. Welcome to the Live Happy Now podcast. I am your host, J.R. Houston. Thrilled as always to have you being a part of our day and for us to be a part of yours wherever you are in the world and however you may be listening. We are just so excited that we get to be a part of it. We also are excited to have Life Reimagined be a part of it. Their website is lifereimagined.org, and it's got all kinds of processes for you to check out, resources for you to go through as you reach your journey of peak happiness. As you awaken to the power of happiness, so do your dreams. So what's next? Find out at lifereimagined.org. Let me ask you a question. What if the secret to lasting happiness were simple? Well, in Live Happy Now's upcoming book, Live Happy, 10 Practices for Choosing Joy, you can discover how surprisingly easy everyday acts can lead to lifelong joy and fulfillment, and it's all proven by the latest in positive psychology research. Now, each chapter is going to be organized around a key element or component, if you will, of creating that lifelong joy and happiness, and sprinkled throughout the book are relatable stories from regular people like you and I, celebrities that have gone through these processes. So you've got the science and the practical application all right there for you in the book. If this is something that you would like to have in your reading collection, and I strongly suggest that if you're a fan of this podcast or Live Happy Magazine, you want this a part of your reading collection, you need to go to choosingjoybook.com and get more information on this. And if you pre-order the book before March 15th, as of the launch date of this episode, you got five days left to do it. You're going to get these gifts absolutely free, okay? Exclusive interviews, illustrated posters, a free issue of the Live Happy Magazine Digital Edition, and five exclusive stories from people who are practicing happiness and creating joyful lives. Again, that website, choosingjoybook.com for more information. In this episode of Live Happy Now, Deborah Heiss is going to be speaking with Birju Pandya on one of 10 practices for choosing joy, which is giving back. Now, one of the companies Birju works is Service Space, an organization that's run entirely by volunteers and leverages technology to encourage everyday people around the world to do small acts of service. Service-based projects range from a daily positive news service to an acts of kindness portal to gift economy restaurants. Birju Pandya focuses on the nexus of money, social good, and inner transformation. Welcome to the Live Happy Now podcast, Birju. I have a question for you. What does that mean, and how did you become interested in it? Working in an industry called impact investing, which is basically the flip side of the coin of social enterprise. So you think about all these social entrepreneurs who are running their organizations, for-profit or non-profit, and they're getting their money from somewhere. And that somewhere is the impact investing industry. And so uh, I started working with a, a group of individuals. And the question that we were asking is, what is good? And what is a good use of money? How do we even know? And so I went on this journey of trying to answer that question and, and put the funds that we were in control of in a place that we felt good about. But we found that that uh, that question, what is good, is such a broad question. You can apply good anywhere. And how do you know that it's really the greatest good? Should we even be thinking about the greatest good? Does it matter? And so uh, for us, the way that that journey played out is we started investing in projects and programs that were doing what we thought was really good stuff, uh, healthcare for the poor, finding and, and creating clean drinking water for people, um, working on education loans, uh, solar power, uh, et cetera, et cetera, in effect. And so definitely things that we felt good about at that level, and we could go to dinner parties and 
talk a really good game about what was happening. And yet, uh, was it really changing the world? We didn't really know. You know, there were a couple of moonshots that we had in there about really shifting things. Um, but for me, it was, a, it was a question of, well, is this as deep as we can go? And one of the companies that we had invested in, I remember sitting in a meeting with the group, and they were talking about how they had been responsible for purifying the drinking water for literally something like 100,000 people in a tier three town in India. And everybody was feeling quite good about it. And I remember raising this question of, do we know where this water is coming from? And folks actually didn't know. I mean, they knew that it was a municipal water supply, but they didn't know where that was, was uh, originating from. And so we, we looked into it and we found out that it was actually coming from an aquifer. And that aquifer was being depleted at 10x the rate at which it was being replenished. And so on one hand, we are, I think rightfully so, talking about how we're doing something good. And yet at the same time, literally in, in a span of maybe a dozen years or so, that aquifer will be gone. And we won't necessarily have created a, an outcome that is sustainable in that level. And so we started looking into that and saying, well, you know, good may not just be having good intentions, but also trying to create a balance with ecology and with community. And so we started looking at projects and programs to do that. And that became our new definition of good. Uh, a few years goes by, we start investing in things like permaculture and uh, how do you replenish and restore fisheries and you know, really beautiful things that you can do uh, from, a, from a money and capital perspective. But of course, there's all these social entrepreneurs who are actually doing this work. And they're going to fishery habitats in the Northeast and uh, abroad, of course, as well, and, and figuring out how do we create a more sustainable way of fishing. And so all of these these projects were interesting, and yet at the same time, I still had this itch inside of, is this the greatest good? And uh, one of the topics that I came across, and I'd been doing volunteer work on the side, so I was predisposed to it, was this work of mindfulness. Uh, and I started to get interested in what happens in a society where we do all of these changes externally, but we don't question how we think or our values or the systems that we have to operate in. And so that's what led me to this whole world of mindfulness and kindness and generosity. And what I found was uh, these are the things that allow us to rewire our own brains. If we rewire our own brains, we start questioning the systems that we operate under. Do we really need capitalism in order to have a functioning fishery, for instance? And those are questions that started to matter to me because I was asking what's the greatest good that we can create. And so for the last couple of years, that's been one of my deepest passions, what I would call inner transformation, this process of rewiring our neurology, whether that's in the gut or in the heart or in the head, as it's commonly thought of, to basically move ourselves towards a world of deeper compassion, of deeper love. From a neuroscience perspective, because you're talking about neuroscience, what does giving to others do to our brain? How does it actually change it? Uh, the context that, that I know, and I'm, I'm certainly not a neuroscientist, but we come in with something like 100 billion neurons in our brains. And what allows us to learn is the, the journey of connecting. The, the neurons connect to each other. And there's a, there's a saying that they use in this field, neurons that fire together, wire together. So 
whatever you think about is what you predispose yourself to thinking about. And over time, we, our, our own brains, are shaped by where we put our attention. And so over time, if, we, if all we choose to focus on is the things that they show us in the news or this idea of scarcity, right, like the world won't take care of you, you've got to make sure you take care of yourself, then over time you develop a brain that's literally incapable of thinking any other way unless you start training it. And so the journey of training it is doing small, consistent actions uh, that build over time and then reflecting, kind of sitting back and saying, well, geez, you know, what am I doing? Why does it matter? What is changing? This sort of thing creates a new kind of neurological firing. And so if you create new neurons that fire together, then new neural pathways will wire together. One of the things you talked about earlier was this concept of are we doing the most good? Um, you know, you talk about we're doing good, but is it the most good? Have, have you reached an answer to that question for, your, for yourself? Because I, I found it interesting that you kept continually question the good you're doing as whether it's good enough. Yeah, and, and I think earlier on in my journey, it did come from that, I would call it a perverse place of good enough, as in I'm not good enough and therefore I need to keep on trying. Uh, I think over time that started to fall away a bit. I give this example of, of the, the healthcare industry where, um, you know, on, on some level, you can look out into society today and, and there's a lot of folks who will look at the, the world of healthcare and say, geez, you know, our hospitals are overflowing. What we need to do at this stage, if we really want to be good, is we need to build more hospitals. And anyone who says otherwise, well, geez, you know, the problem is simple. Can't you see that the hospitals are overflowing? It's so material, it's so tangible, it's simple. And so uh, as time goes on, there's these people that come by and they say, well, wait, you know, how do we keep people from going to hospitals? You know, that might actually be a better solution. And I have an idea. I actually have this whole field called pharmaceuticals. And that's actually going to help you not have to go to the hospital and get your surgeries or whatever else. And so there's a whole field that comes up because they're starting to think more upscale. They're saying, how can I do a greater good than just build more hospitals? So that's kind of the journey that I went through where you know, eventually that leads to the next question of saying, well, well, wait a second, we don't even need to have pharmaceuticals. We could eat right and exercise. And what's that going to do for reducing the pharmaceutical usage and, of course, reducing the hospital incidences? And eventually the journey that I've gotten to now, which I don't necessarily know is the last stage in the journey, is to say it's not just eating right and exercising, but I wonder what happens when we change our thoughts and how that impacts where we end up and if hospitals are as needed as they used to be. That, that's an interesting journey. I, I don't think most of us, um, including myself, always go, okay, I'm, do, I'm, doing, I'm doing something good here. I don't think we always think about how can we, you know, in the giving back sense, how can I give more? How can I be better at giving? I think most of us are, are a little bit, um, hey, I'm doing something good. That's awesome. Now I'm moving on. But I, I love the fact that you're really questioning how do we make it better? How do we improve on the good that we're already doing as opposed to just the mental shifting of I, I wasn't doing good, now I am? That's really interesting to me. One of the things you have talked about is creating a gift culture. Can you explain what that is? Hmm. Yes. It's a wide-ranging question, and so I'm, I'm sitting with one, one possible way to share, which is dovetailing off of what you've just invited. You know, this, this impetus that I'm articulating of how can I 
try to do better good tomorrow than I'm doing today is the outcome of a gift culture, right? So if, if you and I decided to start a practice of kindness today, and we said, okay, we're both going to do one act of kindness today and every day, and we're going to report to each other on it. You know, today and tomorrow, we're going to do things that we're used to doing or we've thought of before, and that may last for 10 or 15 or you know, uh, a month or who knows how long, but around that frame. And, and what I've seen is around that time, we start running out of ideas. And so what we have to do at that point is push hard and create new thoughts, new ways that we could be kind that we may never have thought of before. When we start doing that, and let's say that lasts for another month, two months, five months, 15 months. Now, if you have a community of people who have been doing that, let's say there's 100 people or 1,000 people who have been asking, how can I be kind in new and different ways? How can I push myself in new and different ways? for months, for years on end, uh, eventually you get to a place where the people have really done a significant amount of neurological rewiring. They're thinking and seeing the world in a different way, and they're constantly asking, how can I be kind? How can I be grateful? How can I be compassionate? And the kind of work that I'm interested in inviting in, in myself, first and foremost, is how do I become that kind of a person who is rather than thinking about what do I get out of something or how do I think about something in a, in a give-and-take sort of way, you know, what is my opportunity to gift in this moment? And I think the idea of a gift culture is to invite the possibility that a lot of people can move into this space together. You know, I love that because I know that one of the things that occurs is, um, you know, we talk about this at Live Happy sometimes, that wherever you are becomes ordinary. Um, you know, there's always the concept of, hey, I'm going to get better at that, or I'm going to get my next promotion, I'm going to get my next job, I'm going to get a better car, I'm going to have whatever it is. And you, you achieve something, but then it kind of becomes your everyday normal, and, and you kind of forget. And I think, I think what I'm hearing you say is gift-giving can kind of do the same thing if you're not, or giving can kind of become the same thing. But in a positive way, it can become the new normal, become the way you're always thinking about um, a better way that you can do today, it becomes your normal thought pattern as opposed to becoming a chore or an effort. I think that's well put, Deborah. The way that I've been uh, articulating it myself is using this phrase practice. And the idea of a practice is that it's continually refreshed and we're continually going deeper. I'm not uh, as interested personally on whether I am kind or unkind or grateful or ungrateful but rather the question of how do I engage in a practice of gratitude, a practice of kindness, so that a year from now, whatever my baseline level of kindness or gratitude or you know, pick your positive emotion that I'm exhibiting now, I've gone deeper into that journey. And, and that may have opened up some insights for me that moved me towards greater happiness. So I have to ask you, how did you personally develop an interest in giving back? I think there's an intellectual answer and then there's a, there's a hard answer, and I'll give you both. Um, the intellectual answer is I feel like uh, just being blessed to, to have what I have in this world, which on a relative basis, if we look at the entire world, just being born in America, like what, what does that mean? And, and so it led to this a lot of reflection of wanting to try to offer myself as best as I could. Um, I think that's very altruistic sounding and I can make, I can create those kinds of, of connections intellectually. And I think at a heart level, 
it was more about finding my own path to happiness. Um, I, I, I've gone through depression three times in my life. I'm 33 years old. And as I had those instances come up, the pathways that I've led to have, have all told me, if you want to be happy, it's not about seeking your own happiness. It's about offering yourself to others as, as at least step one. And then finding out, oh, you know, this, there's mindfulness as an opportunity. There's all these things that people are doing to try to offer themselves and in the spirit of kindness. And over time, I, I think what I found for myself is it's no longer the fear of depression that is guiding this sort of thing, but that was the impetus that started the path, I think. You know, I love that you mentioned in the intellectual part of that answer that uh, we're all fortunate when you look at a global scale. I keep uh, telling people that uh, if we're born here, we're kind of all already born on third base. Just through circumstance and through grace, we're all already starting so much ahead of everybody else that it's easy to take advantage of that and not understand where your starting is not equal platform. And for me personally, uh, that really does drive gratitude in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm huge into mindfulness, but even more so into gratitude, just having the grace of understanding that I've been given so many gifts that many people aren't given to start with. And how do you, how do you level the playing field for everybody else? There you go. There you go. And at the same time, you know, this, this gratitude process is in itself a practice as far as I'm aware. And so one of the projects that, that I'm connected to is this idea of how, how do we create a platform for people to grow in gratitude? And so we created this idea of a 21-day challenge where you sign up with a group of yours or you can do it by yourself. But for 21 days, you just try to fire those gratitude neurons one after the other and see how they wire together and create new depths of gratitude that you may not have even seen previously despite believing in the importance of the, the practice. Yeah, I love that. In fact, I've participated in one of those before, and it is very transformative to, to engage in that sort of intentional approach to uh, gratitude or mindfulness, for that matter. One of the things that you're engaged in regularly or that you're heavily involved in is service space. Can you describe for our listeners a little bit what service space is all about? Sure, sure. So I would describe service space as the sandbox that allows for these kinds of practices that I've been sharing, the, the practices that lead to a gift culture, to be tried out in safe ways. And there's multiple projects that allow for that to happen. I, I could share one or two examples, if that makes sense. Yes, for our listeners' sake, this is a servicespace.org, which is a uh, nonprofit and all-volunteer organization, as I understand it. If you wouldn't mind sharing a couple of uh, things that are present there that they might find if they go there, I'd really appreciate it. Sure, sure. There's, there's online and offline approaches to try out and to grow in gratitude and mindfulness. And, and the intention behind it is to say, look, if you, if you try to grow in these things personally, it doesn't have to just be a personal activity. Uh, if you get 100 people to do this together, then all of a sudden you have different possibilities that emerge in terms of how societies could be built. And so one example that we have of that is a restaurant called Karma Kitchen. It's, it's a restaurant in terms of its facade, but when we go inside, uh, everyone who is there to serve you is a volunteer, and um, you'll have your food, and then once the food is over, the, the check will come in, and, and the check will read zero, and the opportunity that will be offered at that moment is, is to pay forward the generosity and love that you receive, and hopefully you have felt that generosity and love in, in whatever way that you want because there's an assumption that there is generosity within each one of us and that we all want to grow it. 
And what we found is after eight years of running this restaurant, you know, we started one place, now it's in over a dozen places and, and tens of thousands of meals given out. And uh, it, is, it is sustainable and then some from a financial level. But I think even beyond that, there is this idea of building community, having a lot of people grow in generosity, grow in gratitude, and finding that these things are very possible. There's, there's a different lifestyle outcome. There's a different systems outcome that's possible if a lot of people hold these values to be very dear. One of the things I want to bring us back to before this interview ends is um, we started off talking about financial investment, you know, really investing in ways that make the world a better place and ultimately investing in ways that bring enrichment into your own life. I've heard you talk about, or you talked about the Mindful Leader Conference about multiple categories of wealth. Would you just expound on that a little bit, what you mean by having multiple categories of wealth? So in, in my own journey, I've gone through this evolution where when I was a kid, you know, I, I wanted to be rich, <laughs> uh, especially growing up, in a, <laughs> in growing up in an immigrant household. I was told that if I wanted to be uh, taken care of or survive in the society, the pathway there was, was money. That's what created security. That's what created wealth. Certainly, that's what I saw on television, magazine, movies, friends. Every place I saw reinforced the same thing. And then as time went on, I started to come across research that showed actually uh, if I if I got paid something like seventy thousand a year, uh, that would maximize my happiness. And then if I got more than that, my happiness would either stay the same or dip a little bit. And I found that to be surprising. Okay, well, why have I been told my entire life that more is always better forever as it comes to money? Uh, similarly, I started to do some research and found out that. Uh, there are other things that give people a lot of happiness. Uh, most of the stuff has been totally under my nose my entire life, but I never gave it attention. I never gave it the, uh, the head nod of saying, yes, this is actually part of what creates wealth in my life. For instance, positive relationships or having fun or having free time or having uh, nature around me, or being able to uh, connect with, with a culture that feels rich that I can learn from, or a space that allows me to feel gratitude and mindfulness and kindness on a regular basis, because that will create all these kinds of uh, endorphins, all these positive ramifications in my brain. Until now, we've had no real way of being able to name this sort of stuff as real wealth, things that actually make me feel wealthier than a person who may have 10 times more in the bank account, but may not have the neurological wiring to actually experience gratitude for it. And so uh, the journey that the service space has been on among the many different projects out there is to start to share this message that we actually are in, in control of our sense of wealth a lot more than we think. And, and we can rewire ourselves to experience that in a very holistic way. You know, everything you've been talking about is something that our readers will find in the pages of Live Happy magazine or in our new book, 10 Practices for Choosing Joy, which is coming out soon. And and so I love talking to you about it because it just reinforces everything that we're hoping that people understand, mainly that happiness or positive well-being is a choice that we can make. There are things we can do, and putting these practices into place in our own lives is a, is a great way to do that. What What are some of the quick suggestions that you have for our listeners on how they can put some of this information into practice in their own lives? The, the big aha moment for me was 
acknowledging the possibility that at every single moment, there was a chance for me to grow in any one of these domains. So let's just pick three. Mindfulness, gratitude, and kindness. At, at this moment right now, I can be kinder than I normally am. And part of the game for me is to figure out how can I do that. And so I would just offer that to the readers. I think there's no shortage of ideas out there, certainly uh, from the platforms that you're connected to, Deborah, there's a ton out there. A Google search will create so many more. But I think the question of practice is so interesting here that, you know, am I going to do it tomorrow? Am I going to do it an hour from now? Or literally right now, where is that possibility that I'm not seeing? Because that's what's going to create the new neurology for me. If you would like a free sketch note of this episode and to learn more about service space, visit livehappynow.com. Also, remember to pre-order your book and get all those exclusive offers. Live Happy, 10 Practices for Choosing Joy is the name of the book, and the only way to pre-order it is by going to livehappy.com slash pre-order. Well, thank you for being a part of things once again. If you'd like to reach out and give us your thoughts, do so by going to Twitter at livehappy, facebook.com slash livehappy, by going on Instagram as well, searching my live happy, or sending us an email podcast at livehappy.com. For everyone involved with Live Happy Now podcast and Live Happy magazine, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long and thank you. And remember to always live happy.